We're in a series called The Empowering Presence, and um, in this series, what we're, what we're hoping to do is to both theologically look at who the Holy Spirit is, and then starting kind of next week and for the remainder of our series, we're going to look into more of what the Spirit does and even uh, kind of wade into the practical stuff of the Spirit when we're talking about uh, prophecy and um, so even speaking in tongues, what that is, and uh, deliverance, and um, like things like that, like the practical stuff, that, the stuff that you see. So uh, we've been talking so far about what the Spirit, who the Spirit is, and today there's this kind of like pivotal like hinge of a sermon, which is today, that moves into like more of the practical stuff. So um, let me pray. If you're at Acts chapter 1, it's it, towards the back of the Bible in the New Testament after the Gospels, the book of Acts. Uh, the book is officially called like the Acts of the Apostles, but it's more like the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's why it's there. Okay, so let me pray and we'll get started. Lord, Jesus, would you, um, would you help, us, help us to be fully human and to be like fully uh, immersed in uh, like the Holy Spirit at the same time? Like on this earth, full of all the earthly things that we are full of, at the same time wanting to be filled with the Spirit. And I know there's tension there. I know there's struggle there. There's struggle with all of us and for every one of us. But Lord, I pray, God, that you would um, teach us how to navigate both those and step into things that you would like us to step into as a church um, in this city. And would you keep us from the lies and the schemes of Satan? And God, would you, I ask that you would anoint me to speak your word um, with, uh, with dependence upon you during this, this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'd like to start with uh, a question. And the question is, is there, is there more to Christianity than what you have and what I have experienced so far? Is there more to your faith than the seemingly consistent struggle that we all live in as humans? Most of us, if we're like really honest, we could admit that, admit to the fact that since we can't find more peace in our lives, we often settle for more poison in our lives. And we find this poison kind of everywhere. It's all over our news. It's all over social media. Um, the poison that we settle for sometimes in what we drink, who we sleep with, uh, we find it in the fact that we too easily surrender to our own version of personal comfort. Um, our own narcissism, our greed, our own fears, our anxieties, our exclusivity, our bitterness, our unforgiveness, and our superficiality. We find this po poison even in the new thing we call binge-watching television, and just, and which is silly because if I can remind you, that word binging comes to us from the recovery world, and it's something that you typically need help in overcoming, <laughs> not something you glorify, just saying. And when we turn to the Christian faith, things aren't that much better. It feels like the church is in a crisis right now. It feels like our, the church uh, in America is broken, fighting about everything from sexuality to sexism to politics to race. As a pastor, it often feels like a tinderbox every time I, I stand, stand up here. Everyone listening to me from their own biases and listening to my biases. And I guess what I'm asking, is there more to Christianity than all this? Is there more promised to us is there more for us? Is there more that can be accomplished through us? Is there more? The very famous evangelist Billy Graham, who traveled the country as an evangelist a generation ago, said this about the church. 
He said, everywhere I go, I find that God's people lack something. They are hungry for something. Their Christian experience is not all they expected, and they often have recurring defeat in their lives. Christians today are hungry for spiritual fulfillment. The most desperate need of the nation today is that men and women who profess Jesus be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think he saw... (laughs) Thank you and catchy. That was great. I, I think he saw the early cracks in the failing church a generation ago and how that was having an impact on our society and our nation. I think he put his finger on the insurmountable anxiety in the lives of many Christians then and even today. And the solution, he says, the resolution, he says, is we need full immersion in the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to ask the question is, can that be true? Is that really what it takes When we look at the life of Jesus, we find in the Gospels that it's almost as if everywhere Jesus goes, what is true in heaven becomes true on earth. Whatever is true in heaven, it almost seems like everywhere Jesus goes, whatever is true in heaven becomes true on earth through the life and ministry of Jesus. It's as if heaven is breaking in through Jesus' life. This can be seen in all kinds of ways, like in healing, when Jesus heals the blind, the mute, the lame in preaching how the kingdom of God is available to everyone right now, in deliverance, people being delivered from the grips of the demonic and the oppressive spirits. And because of this, very common people love to follow Jesus. Very common folk loved, flocked after Jesus. But the religious leaders, they followed Jesus too, but they saw Jesus as a threat to everything that they stood for. One time, The religious leaders accuse Jesus of being able to do everything he does because he's aligned with the prince of demons. They said, the reason why you can do everything you're doing is that you are aligned with the prince of demons, Beelzebul, which was the prince of demons. And so Jesus replies to them and says this, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. What you're saying makes no sense. If Satan is driving out Satan, then his kingdom is divided and his kingdom cannot stand. If I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But, and here's the conclusion, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What Jesus is saying here is that everything that he's doing, delivering people from demonic influence, everything he's doing, including healing the blind, the etc., He's doing all of this. Jesus is saying, I'm doing all of this by the power of the Spirit. Therefore, God's kingdom is coming upon the world. It's the Spirit of God that I'm doing this through, and therefore it's the kingdom of God that's coming upon this world, meaning the Spirit is at work ushering in heaven here and now through this ministry that I have. Now, here's a question. Why does that even matter? Why does it matter? That Jesus was doing all of this by the Spirit of God, therefore the kingdom of God was coming upon the world. Why does it matter? Why? Here, here's why it matters. Later on in John's Gospel, Jesus is recorded as saying this. Very truly I tell you, his disciples are circled up, he's about to go to the cross and be betrayed. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than, I, than these, because I am going to the Father. The work Jesus does 
and how Jesus does them is very important because he said followers of him will do greater things. So how Jesus does them and what Jesus does is very important to us because he says to us, we will do greater things. Now, there's a lot of debate in scholarship on what Jesus meant by even greater works. What does it mean that we will do greater works in Jesus? But here's where everyone agrees. Greater does not mean not greater. So if you're going, well, what does that even mean? Well, it, it, it at least means greater. It doesn't mean not greater or less than. or He doesn't mean that. He means greater. Now, it could be mean in quality or quantity. I prefer quantity because Christians that have the Spirit of God are everywhere now. Jesus was limited to time and space. But it could. some people think it's quantity. Some people think it's quantity. We don't know. But at least it means greater. Greater works than what you saw me do. Also important here is to note that John 14 is set in the context of Jesus saying that he's going to the Father in order to release the Spirit. That's the whole context of John 14. I'm going to the Father, and when I go to the Father, the Father is going to send you the Spirit. Now, I'm going to the Father, and you will do greater works than me. You will. You who work in a, in, in a job where you just kind of go through the motions every day, and you get up, and you go to work, and you come home. Jesus said to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will do greater works than him. You who feel like locked into um, a period of your life where not much is happening or going on spiritually, you will do greater works. So what happens from here? What happens from John 14 on? Well, what we know is that Jesus goes to the cross, and at the, on the cross, he gives up the Spirit. And at this point, the Spirit of God is be, through the cross is now released onto the world where this is the age, the Spirit age to break into the world as we talked about on the very first week of the series. This happens. Jesus dies, and the Spirit is now available to all of us to reside in us. And then after resurrection, Jesus is raised from the dead by the Spirit. After resurrection, he sees his disciples, and he breathes on them, and he says, what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Commentators believe that this point right there, right here, is how and when the, 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 the first like, disciples become reborn. Or God's Spirit lives in them and they're regenerated. They have regenerated hearts. They have a new spirit and a new heart is given to them like prophesied in the Old Testament. So here's what we know so far, if you're tracking with me. Jesus has the Spirit and he's ministering in the power of the Spirit. Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, did some pretty powerful kingdom of God stuff. Like cast out demons, like raise the dead, like heal the sick, like preach the kingdom of God and its availability to everyone. Things like that. Jesus said, greater things will do when he goes to the Father. And the context is the cross and the releasing of the Holy Spirit. And then after resurrection, Jesus gives his disciples the Spirit. And they are maybe, quote, born again. They have new life. Okay, so that's, that's the context. Now, if you're in Acts, Acts chapter 1. Look, look at chapter 1, verse 1, if you're there. I'm going to read down to verse 7. In my former book, Theophilus... I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Notice how Luke, who's the author of Acts, frames that this, this book, is, book one was all about what Jesus was doing, what Jesus was teaching, and how he began to do and teach. After giving instructions, uh, until the day he was taken to heaven, sorry. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So the introduction here for Luke is that the Holy Spirit began to do, or Jesus began to do through the Holy Spirit, something in Luke that we read all about, and now in Acts, 
It's all about what Jesus continues to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. After his suffering, Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is what was breaking in through Jesus, remember? One, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Or literally baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's how it literally reads in the Greek. You will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So how did John baptize with water? He took people and he fully immersed them under the water and they came out soaked with water. Jesus says, in the same way, I'm going to plunge you into the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to be all over you, like completely like dripping off of you. Okay, That's kind of the imagery he's using here. Then they gathered around him, and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But I will tell you this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And then you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So why is the Spirit so important? Because, Jesus says, the Spirit will come upon you and the Spirit will give you new power. Now, not a new power to him. Jesus is actually saying the Spirit's going to come upon you and give you a new power that is actually the same power that I've been operating in. I've been operating the way that I've been bringing the kingdom of God to bear on this world. The way I've been operating the power, a way that I've been operating and everything I'm doing is by the power of the Spirit. And in a few days from now, you are going to receive that same power. So that you can do the things I've been doing and you could witness to what, who I am and what I've done on the cross. And that you could be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. But wait in Jerusalem for that moment and it will be unmistakable, undeniable. You will know when this happens. The Spirit of God will come upon you. So let's add this to what we already know. What we know is that they had the Spirit before this. Right? We just breathe on them and they receive the Spirit. But here, the Spirit comes upon them in verse 8. And they will get eventually fully immersed in the spirit. That's the baptism metaphor in verse 5. So the next question, what were they given the spirit for? Why did Jesus say, wait for the spirit? And the answer is, for power. Verse 8. You will, be, you, will have, you will receive power when the spirit comes upon you. And you will receive power to be my witnesses. You will receive power to witness to who Jesus is and his spirit and his work in and through you. So what happens next? Well, first, it's so important to realize this. The way that the Gospels read and the way that the book of Acts read, it almost sounds like two different groups of people uh, are being talked about. In the Gospels, the, the disciples are presented as very ordinary, very flawed oftentimes scared, asking questions, very confused. In the Gospels, you read all of the disciples are very ordinary men and women. But something happens in Acts. In Acts, every single disciple is full of power and courage to spread the good news of Jesus. They are bold when they get like persecuted and beat, like literally flogged and whipped. They come out rejoicing. They're like, oh my gosh, 
I just got beat up for Jesus. What now? Like that, that, that wasn't happening before. Before Peter, Peter was like, uh, I, I got a sword, Jesus. I got a sword. Anyone tries to get, uh, do anything to you, I got a sword. I got your back. We're not going down without a fight. After Holy Spirit, they go, they go boldly into persecution, proclaiming Jesus, getting, getting beaten, and then rejoicing. All this, Something happens. What happens? Well, Acts chapter 2 verse 2 says that the day of Pentecost came and the whole house was filled with a mighty wind and God came and looked like tongues of fire resting on all of them and they were all filled with the Spirit, Acts chapter 2 verse 4. And then they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. And then later, right after that, Peter gets arrested. Peter gets arrested because all of this like commotion begins to happen. And the Sanhedrin pulls Peter aside and is like, what's going on here? What's all this commotion about? And Peter gets up to the Sanhedrin, which is the religious council of the day, and begins to explain what happened. And it says, when he began to explain what happened, he was filled with the Spirit, Acts 4.8. And he proclaimed Christ before his accusers. And then after being released, he goes right into a prayer meeting. All the disciples were praying for him while he was in prison. He gets out, goes right into the prayer meeting, and the room is shaken. And everyone in that room is filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly, Acts 4.31. And then later, when the church seeks people to help with the task of waiting tables because they're trying to feed those in need, they, you know what they look for? They look for people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the resume. Like, what, what have you done in the past? Are you filled with the Spirit? Check, you're done. That's who we're looking for. Acts 6.3 says they look for someone, some people that are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they find Stephen. Acts 6.5 says a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And then Stephen gets arrested because everyone was getting arrested in, the, in these days. Because what they were doing, they were proclaiming that Jesus is risen from the dead and that Jesus is Lord. And that for both Roman and Jewish leaders was very threatening. So Stephen gets arrested and he stands up because what he's doing, uh, he's standing up in a, uh, to a synagogue that's trying to destroy the early church. And Stephen stands up to the synagogue and says, no, no, what you're doing is wrong. Jesus is the Messiah. And they tried to argue with Stephen. Stephen just waits tables. That's all he does. But look it. But they could not match the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit gave Stephen as he spoke, Acts 6.10. They couldn't argue with them because every time they tried to argue with Stephen, Stephen was full of the Spirit and started like proving them all wrong like Jesus did. So they tried to have him killed. So when he stood before the religious council, the Sanhedrin again, he get, they say, Stephen, speak for yourself. What do you want to say to us? Give your testimony. And Stephen gave this insane long speech you can read about how God has been at work from Abraham through to Jesus. And like the wicked leaders of the past, the Sanhedrin refused Jesus as a prophet and had him killed. And at the climax of his speech, he accuses the religious leaders of being stiff-necked like the Exodus uh, generation and he, saying this. They, he said this to them, Acts 7, 51. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. They, this doesn't go over well. They get really angry and they be cursed at him and they pick up rocks to stone him. And as they're about to try to kill Stephen, Stephen, it says, Stephen while he was being killed, was filled with the Spirit and saw a vision of Jesus, which is cool, but he shouldn't have said anything because he said, oh my gosh, I see God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And they're like, nope, that's it. And they kill him right on the spot. They literally stone him to death. And then later on, God saves a man named Saul and gives him a new name, Paul. 
and he received the Spirit when, the, when a disciple named Ananias lays his hands on Paul in Acts 9.17. And then Paul goes on to minister in the power of the Spirit. Now, I could go on. I'm going to stop there. I could go on. Acts is a 28-chapter book, and it's filled with these ordinary people who are filled with the Spirit. Now, what does Acts lead to? Acts is the very beginning of the church, the, very, the early days of the church, the early months of the church, the early years of the church, and how the church spreads and expands through the power of the Spirit. What does the book of Acts lead to? And the answer is Christianity has literally changed the world. The standards by which we talk about the value of human life, dignity, and worth, even love as a value, all of this is from a Christian worldview. This is literally has shaped, shaped the Western world. I was in a conversation recently with someone who said, I think, I honestly think all, I think Christianity should be illegal because of its um, perpetration of hate. And I said, with all due respect, the very categories you're using for hate are Christian categories. And he said, fair enough. The, the, you can't even argue on what is hate. Even in, our, even in a secular world without a Christian worldview, Christianity literally changed the world. A recent scholar wrote a book about how the early church was so successful in Rome and how the church grew in numbers and influence despite being looked down upon with popular and sophisticated complaints, allegations, ridicule, critique, harassment, and even state-approved efforts to persecute it and stamp it out. This book is called the... the, the, the the book is called Destroyer of the Gods. Sorry, that's kind of a tongue twister. Destroyer of the Gods. In this book, the author, this is actually a very well-written, easy to, like, uh, to access uh, book on the early church. He says why early Christianity was so effective. And here's his five reasons why Christianity was so effective, early Christianity was so effective in the Roman world. One, it was highly multi-ethnic. What, what the early church was saying was that, was that Jesus wasn't just the God of Jews or Jesus wasn't just this tribe's God. What they were saying was God, Jesus, the Father, Son, and Spirit revealed through Jesus is God of everyone. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. There's one God, therefore everyone can have access to this one God. Where before, you had tribal gods. This is, this is a god of heaven and earth. This is every, everyone had access to this god. And so all sorts of multi, even in the book of Acts, you see all sorts of multi-ethnic people coming to faith in Christ. So all these different people from all these different places around the world came under the lordship of Jesus. People who were, should be enemies because of their nationality were now people who were brothers and sisters in Christ. And in Christ, there's no longer slave or free, male or female. Like that whole thing came about because of Christ. Next, they were very committed to the poor. They would share what they had with everyone. Literally at the very beginning of Acts, they would, they would sell everything they had. They put it in a pile and everyone who had need took what they needed. They were very committed to the poor. So the poor that would come into this this church, this early church, had what they needed. They were protected in this church. The third thing he says is they were non-retaliatory, meaning little, I'll just actually read a um, I'll read a, a document from uh, the second century uh, about 
a document written to a civic leader about the church. He says, though dishonored, slandered, insulted, and cursed, the church, they bless in return and they offer respect. Though hated and wronged, Christians love those who hate them. So they were persecuted, but they were non-retaliatory. Fourth, they were pro-life. Infants, uh, infanticide, did I say that right? Yes, I did. Infanticide was a form of abortion in the first century. They would literally, Romans would literally throw babies away. Whether they didn't want the baby, the baby didn't turn out the way they wanted to, wrong sex, whatever, they would th literally throw the baby away. Christians would go and get them and raise them. They were literally pro-life. Fifth, the original Christian sex ethic. Marriage bed is holy. Husband, wife for life. That was sacred. That was holy. Now, here's the thing. When I started this list, most of us that live in San Francisco, you know, like a little bit, a little bit liberal-leaning San Francisco, started this list, we're like, oh, heck yes. This is amazing. Highly, highly multi-ethnic, very committed to the poor, non-retaliatory. I don't know about that. Um, and then I get into pro-life. Pro-life, you're like, oh, oh my gosh, he's saying that from the pulpit? Wait, you can't talk about, Chris, you can't talk about Christian sex ethic from here? Like, do you see, I, one pastor pointed out, um, actually the first two sound very democratic, and the last two sound very Republican, and the middle one is no one, right? <laughs> Absolutely no one. And I think this is so insanely beautiful, right? I think this actually, this actually gives the Christian faith uh, validity. Like, this is a case for the Christian faith right here. It is neither Republican nor is it Democrat. It's actually not even either of them because everyone's retaliatory these days. I even think because of the rights of our, of our nation, if I was to say, give up your rights and don't retaliate, most of you would go, I, will ne I could never do that. You're not going to silence my voice. I need, I need to speak out for myself. Jesus literally went to the cross silent. And he said, if your enemy persecutes you, turn the other cheek. Bless and do not curse. This doesn't fit into anyone's categories. This blows everyone's categories away. You are offended by this list somewhat. Everyone is offended by this list somehow. But this is how Christianity changed the world. Now, I think this is insanely radical and beautiful. Actually, I want to spend next year, 2019, exploring what this means for our community. But right now, the question is this. How? How was this done? Where does power like this come from? Did everyone in the early church take classes? Did they all go to seminary? Did they all like get in a room, hey guys, this is what we're going to do. We're going to be multi-ethnic. Is everybody cool with that? We're going to be very committed to the poor. We're going to be non-retaliatory. We're going to be pro-life. We're going to be, we're going we're to hold to the original Christian sex ethic. Is everybody cool with that? Like, does everyone go to a class? Like, how do they know this stuff? What was it? And this all goes back, I think this all goes back to what Jesus said and the obedience of the early followers of Jesus to do what Jesus said, and that they're not to leave Jerusalem, but they're to wait for the gift my Father promised. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to be my witnesses. So the question is this. Do we believe the Bible? Do we believe the Bible is the real account of what can really happen about what Jesus really said when the Holy Spirit comes upon us? That the Spirit would bring us into the life of Jesus, and to live like Jesus and to be empowered to carry out what Jesus began to do and to teach. In my studies over this series, I read this really great story about a pastor of, of uh, the Vineyard Church. His name is, uh, was John Wimber. And John Wimber came to faith when he was 29 years old. 
he managed somehow to live his whole life with almost no exposure to the church or the Bible or even Christian people. And it was all new to him when he came to faith in, a, in a, like a home Bible study. Weeks after coming to faith in Christ, they said to him, once you become in faith in Christ, here's a Bible, start reading the Bible. So he started devouring the Bible, especially the New Testament. And he was told, go to church. Read your Bible, go to church. Those two things. So that next Sunday, him and his wife loaded up the car, went to church, sat in the back, got there late, listened to some hymns, heard a rather passionless sermon, and church was over. At the end of church, they were like, ah, oh, whatever. They decided to go back because they thought, well, that's what Christians do. You just go to church. You're a Christian, you go to church. So they started going to church. And they started to, Wimber started to devour the Bible. And when he was going to church and reading the Bible, he noticed that there was a gap from what he read in the Bible to what he saw at his church. So one day he went up to one of the elders of the church who was greeting outside the church. And he said to him, hi, I have a question. I'm new to this church. I have a question. What's your question? When do we get to do the stuff? That was his question. The elder's like, what stuff? You know, the stuff. And he holds up his Bible. The stuff in here. And he turned to the New Testament. And he said, the stuff. And he opened the New Testament and goes, you know, the stuff that Jesus did. You know, casting out demons and prophesying and healing the sick and preaching towards conversion. You know, the stuff. When do we get to do the stuff? And the elder answered, we don't do that anymore. And he's like, you don't? He's like, no. He goes, well, then what do you, what do you, what do you guys do? He goes, what we did this morning, saying, listen. And John said, I gave up drugs for that. <laughs> That's what he said, I gave up drugs for that? Like, this is what I gave up drugs for? And I've been asking, and, I, and literally, that, I think that's kind of my story as well. Like, I, to fo follow Christ, I literally had to give up drugs. And I liked drugs a lot, a lot, um, a lot. And... <laughs> Give up drugs for this? Like just like singing and going, like going to, like give up drugs for, there's, there's, there has to be more. I mean, if you read this, there's, there's a disconnect here. And I've been asking myself through the course of life, the life of this church, Lord, when do we get to do the stuff? I, I want to see, I, I want to see the stuff. I don't want to be part, I, do, I just don't want to be part of like this healthy nonprofit here. Like, that, that's good. I, I want to be healthy, and I want to be a healthy nonprofit, because, I mean, we have to be before the state of California, but whatever. That my goal isn't just to be a healthy nonprofit. I want the stuff of the kingdom breaking into the city of San Francisco. Like, that's what I hope for. That's what I want. And I know I'm not alone. I know I'm not, I know, I know I'm not alone, even if you don't have categories for it, even if you come from a... Um, like, a, a background where charismatic stuff was never a part of your background, even still, that's fine. And there's so much space for you here if, if you're not you're like more charismatic that way. But everyone in here that's a follower of Jesus, because this is what the Spirit does, we always long for God to do more. More in us, more in our city. I can only, honestly say that, that stuff does not happen without a direct reliance and submission to the Spirit's work in the church. We need the Holy Spirit. Dr. Hawthorne, who was a professor of Greek at Wheaton College, studied every single New Testament reference concerning the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus. And this is his conclusion. He says, quote, There is no reason whatsoever to believe that what was true of those earliest Christians is any less true of Christians in this century. Surely contemporary crises are no less great. The challenges to one's strength, wisdom, patience, and love are no less demanding of resources beyond human resources than they were in the first century. 
And followers of Jesus today are no more sufficient for all of these in and of themselves than were his followers yesterday. Furthermore, God's program of enabling people to bust the bounds of their human limitations and achieve the impossible is still in place and still effective. That program involves filling people with his, his spirit, filling them with supernatural power. We need the, the spirit, and we need the filling that the spirit imparts. Now, to get very practical, what does it mean to be filled with the spirit? Well, first off, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't Listen to last week's sermon. We talked all about this. The Spirit in us, if you're a Christian, cries out to two confessions, Jesus is Lord and Abba Father. You have the Spirit if you are a follower of Jesus. And being filled with the Spirit is actually a command of Scripture, according to Paul. So we have the Spirit, but there is a filling of the Spirit, or maybe more availability in our own life, room in our own life for the Spirit to fill our lives, whether it's making room for the Spirit or the Spirit to come upon us. We have this imagery of the being filled or filled up to full measure or saturated in. Some people say baptized into, like fully immersed into the Spirit and what the Spirit's doing. Now, if you can imagine God's a person, this means that God ha has more and more access to our lives. He's speaking more and more clearly to us. We're more and more obedient to him. We are more and more walking in line with who he is and his character and that sort of thing. Ephesians 5.18 says this, very convicting passage of Scripture, especially for San Franciscans. Do not get drunk on wine. You're like, got that covered. Whiskey. No. <laughs> Alcohol. Okay. That's what he's saying. Alcohol. This is a command. Do not get drunk on alcohol, which leads to debauchery. Instead, here's the alternative. Be filled with the Spirit. In Greek, this reads, be continually being filled with the Spirit, as if our bodies somehow like leak, like somehow our bodies, somehow like the spirit gets in us, but, but somehow our bodies, because we're broken vessels, like pours out of us. And we need to always be filled with the spirit. What Paul is saying is that both states are under the influence or coming under the control of an external power. There's, not, there's no coincidence that, us, that strong liquors are called spirits. Paul is not concerned with the physical phenomena attached with the state of being drunk, on alcohol, like, you know, like flopping around or like talking weird. He, he's not talking about anything like that. His concern is to encourage every believer to be under the influence and filled with and led by God himself. In other words, to be divinely intoxicated, to be filled with the Spirit. Now, the fact that Paul could even make this command to be filled with the Spirit implies that many believers are not filled with the Spirit. There's a chance that you are not filled with the Spirit. There's a chance that you're filled with yourself, with worry, with anxiety, with sin, maybe even something demonic, like something funky, spiritually weird, off. To be filled with the Spirit is to give over your life to full access to God's Spirit to fill you completely. This verse is also a hinge of a long ethical section from chapter 4, verse 17 to chapter 6, verse 20. Paul is saying that if we are to live a life marked by personal holiness and mutual love, and if we are to fight and stand against demonic principalities and powers, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And what has me curious over this last couple of weeks thinking about this is I'm curious to ask if those of you who might be afraid of the Spirit, I know there's, that, that's happening all over our church right now. Like you're in the, We're in the series, like, I'm kind of afraid of the Spirit. Like, if the Spirit comes upon me, I'm, I'm afraid of that. And I've been very curious. Are you afraid of the Spirit, and are you also afraid of getting drunk? I think there, there are some people who are, who are not afraid of getting drunk, but are afraid of the Holy Spirit. And I think there might be a moral disconnect for you that needs some, um, maybe some interior work done, some confession, some realization that comes from the Holy Spirit. Like, show me what's up with that. Like, I have no problem getting drunk, but I have a big problem getting filled with the Spirit. I'm really afraid of that. What, there's some disconnect there that you should, you should start thinking about. Also, I've been curious about this. Maybe you're afraid of both of those. Maybe you're like, I'm so afraid of getting drunk, and I'm so afraid of the Holy Spirit. I'm afraid of both. And I think the d- disconnect for you might be, like, s- psychological. Maybe you don't like losing control ever. You like being in control of everything. You like being perceived in a certain way. And so you never get drunk because you're afraid that you'll do something embarrassing or stupid. And that's really wise. I'm not knocking that at all. But also, you're also afraid of being filled with the Spirit because you're like, what if, it, what if the Spirit makes me do something I don't want to do? Or it makes me look, do something silly like crying in front of someone. I'm not ready for that. I think there's something there as well that you should be asking about, asking the Spirit about. Reveal what that is. I think either way, this text can challenge us, especially people who live in San Francisco, where drinking is a historical pastime for us. It's like woven in the history of our, of our city, literally woven in the history of our city. So what is being filled with the Spirit? Here's a good definition of it from Simon Ponsonby. He says, um, a constantly repeatable, deepening experience of God's Spirit, who brings a greater revelation of the person and work of Christ, a blazing love for Christ, a greater and more effective empowering to witness, and a transforming conformity to the character of Christ. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Some call this experience baptism with the Spirit. Others call this, spirit, this, thing, this being filled with the Spirit. I think the most biblically legitimate thing to call this is being filled with the fullness of God. We want to be filled with the fullness of God. Ephesians 3.17, Paul says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is Paul, Ephesians is all about like the Spirit's work in our life. And the way he says it here is filled with the fullness of of God, that all of God, all that you can contain of God will be filled in all of you. Every single morning when I wake up, I pray. Some, some of the uh, process of my meditation has been praying through certain prayers. We talked about this in our last series. One of them is the Trinity prayer that we prayed two summers ago, I believe, or maybe last summer. Or, yeah, two summers ago. And it's every morning I pray, Father, may I live in your presence and please you more and more. Jesus, may I take up my cross and follow you. And lastly, I pray, Spirit of the living God, may you fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. And then I repeat the fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And as I do this, I just, as I read them and, and recite them, I, I, I just ask the Spirit, what's one thing are you, you kind of want to like spray some miracle grow on today? Like what is the thing that you're like, 
you're like, grow, grow, fruit, grow. You know, what's the thing? It might be gentleness one day because it just looked like on edge. It might be peace, whatever it is. And I'm just like praying into that thing. Fill me with yourself so that all of the fruit of the Spirit would ripen in me. Fill me. Fill us. So the question is this. Here's another question. Could you, can we grow in this? Could you actually grow in the power of the Holy Spirit? Is it like the zap, like, like a Harry Potter sort of move, and then you get boom, you get filled with the Spirit? And this, or could you actually grow in the power of the Spirit? Jordan saying in his book, Miracle Work, actually gives, and this, this, is, this is a great, he gives an equation, and I believe this equation is very biblical. He gives an equation for growing in the power of the Spirit. And his equation is this. It's intimacy with God plus holiness plus faith that always feels like risk, equals power. This is, write this down, this is a great, if you're into like code, this is the code right here. <laughs> this is the code for all you coders or whatever. Here's the code to grow in power of the spirit. Intimacy with God, you're growing in your intimacy with God. This is why we did the whole Everyday Mystic series, that you're growing in your intimacy with God, knowing God, knowing the character of God, who he is, and your personal holiness. Your personal holiness the things that the spirit of the living God convicts in you, stirs up in you, ways that you're growing towards Christ's likeness, that plus faith that always, uh, he says, faith is always spelled R-I-S-K. Meaning you step out. When God has you pray for someone, if, if you're walking next to someone, you have this compelling, like maybe word of knowledge for them. Like I know something that I don't know if I should know about you. You just take a risk, go, I, 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 maybe this is right, maybe this is wrong. Can I just, I, I'm, maybe I, I might be hearing something from God for you specifically. And you take a risk. If, you're, if someone says, I have this pain and my whatever, and you just get filled with faith going, can I pray for healing for you? Like that God would actually heal you and you step out in faith. It might be a person at your work. You're like, this person's not a Christian. I don't think I'm allowed to pray at work. You risk. You're like, you have hurt. Can I pray for you that, that God would heal you? Like this is, this is how we grow in power, intimacy, holiness, faith. I began by asking if there was more to your Christian life than, that, than what you've experienced so far. And I guess that question was a little rhetorical. Of course there's more. Of course there's more for you and for me. I would also say just being human is that we have this desire in our humanness for more. We have an almost insatiable desire for more as humans. And I think, I honestly, as I've been meditating on this reality, I honestly think that this is a spiritual desire. We have a spiritual desire for more. And what I think is I think consumerism has hijacked the spiritual desire. Consumerism is a longing for more, to buy and consume in order to experience. It's, we buy and consume in America even to show our politics. I thought, I thought it was quite telling that during the Nike Kaepernick-like campaign and that thing came out, everyone was on one side like, I'm not going to buy Nike ever again. I'm only, that's so anti-American. I'm going to buy Adidas, a German company. I'm going to do this thing, you know, whatever. And then everyone, like, I'm buying Nike now. I'm supporting what Cap supports. I support that. And you were, people were showing their politics through buying something, through consumerism. Like, I'm going to show you that I'm pro this by buying something because I'm American. And that's what we do in America. We consume to show who we are. That, that is a hijacked spiritual longing. 
Consumerism is built on the idea that, that the more you have, the more you want. In my opinion, that desire is at the root of our spirituality, and it's been hijacked by capitalism, capitalism and consumerism. The more we have, the more we want is actually the authentic cry of our souls towards God. The desire for more of God is like coded in the essential DNA of our spiritual life. Thomas Aquinas once posed the question, what is the adequate object of the human intellect and will? In modern terms, he was asking, what would completely satisfy every aching and every longing that we have? And his answer is this, all being, everything, all that is. What would satisfy us? Those new things, that new whatever, his answer is this, you will be buying and consuming and longing and going until you, you get all being, everything, all that is. We would have to somehow know and somehow be affectionately connected to everything, all that is, for our restless minds and hearts to come at full peace. This is why you are wired to know God. He is everything and all that is. And even on this life, you might have God, you still want more of God, because God is limitless. And you were designed to take in the limitlessness, the limitlessness of God. Jesus actually says so. Uh, there was a Jewish festival where they would pour out water from the altar and the, and the water would flow out on the temple steps. And they would do this signifying that the Spirit of God would one day come and fill the earth again. And at that festival, Jesus stands up on the greatest day when the, the high priest would pour out this water on the altar. He said, it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Luke, uh, John chapter 7, Jesus stood in a loud voice when they were pouring out this water that the Spirit would come. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. The infinite, all that is, will take residence in your life and start gushing, and you will want more and get more because God is unlimited. Now, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. You know how I know that? Look at this next sentence. By this, he meant the Spirit, <laughs> whom those who believed in him were later to receive, up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus is like, you thirsty? Like that longing, do you want more? It's the Spirit. The Spirit lives in you. And then the Spirit, who is God himself, lives in you. And it's unending. And it takes over your heart. In closing, Andrew Murray, a uh, famous um, uh, pastor and evangelist, suggested four practical and verbal steps we, can, we must take to be filled with the Spirit. And here they are. And we can do this during our, our, our time in ministry. We must say, I must be filled. We have to say, I must be filled, knowing that God commands it and we need it. We say, I may be filled, believing that it is God's desire and promise to fill us with the Spirit. We can say, I can be filled, willing to surrender all to make room for His Spirit. And we can say, I shall be filled, declaring the promised gift of God purchase by Christ. That is what we're going to lean into during our time of response and ministry. We're going to ask and say together, I must be filled, I may be filled, I can be filled, I shall be filled. Let's pray.